You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. The key verse this morning is verse 34, but I'm going to read verses 34 through 39 for us. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our God once again to ask for his mercy and help as we hear his word. Please pray with me. Father, your Son is our life, and he is our light. I pray now that as we hear his word, that that's exactly what we will hear. That though his word is coming through a feeble preacher, I ask that we would hear Christ and not me. That Christ would increase in all of our minds and hearts, and that we would decrease in our own estimation. Lord, we know there are many distractions, especially at this time of year. Many of us are sick and ailing, but we pray that you would guard us from those distractions. You would guard us from our own indwelling sin. You would guard us from the schemes of the devil who would seek to snatch away the good seed of your word. Give us warm hearts, attentive minds that we might understand why you sent your son into the world. That we would believe and that we would rejoice. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear God's word to you this morning from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. Jesus himself is speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. And to God, we give thanks for this good gift. Well, during this Advent season, we are asking the question, why did Jesus come into the world? We've already learned that Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, which was probably not a surprising answer for any of us. When we hear that, we think, 
that sounds right. Of course, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Today's answer, however, which comes directly from Jesus' lips, may sound a bit surprising. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so we learned this morning that another reason Jesus came into the world was to bring a sword. Now that answer might surprise you, and understandably so. For if you're familiar with the gospel and with the Christmas story, you know that peace is a significant theme of the story. When Isaiah foretold the Messiah's birth, he said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Another prophet, the prophet Zechariah, also said that the Messiah would come to speak peace to the nations. And when the angels announced Jesus' birth, they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace with those whom he is well pleased. So when we hear Jesus say, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, we may understandably wonder why the Prince of Peace said he didn't come to bring peace. And so we're going to spend a few moments together considering what this sword is that Jesus brought and what this sword does. So what is the sword that Jesus came to bring? Well, clearly Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about a literal sword. We don't read about the baby lying in a manger, swaddled with his little cuddly sword instead of a teddy bear. And nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus draw a sword on his enemies. In fact, when Peter uses a sword to defend Jesus when Jesus is being arrested, Jesus says, put that away, Peter. So the sword is not an actual sword. It is a metaphor describing division. Swords cut, they pierce, and they divide whatever they cut and pierce. And so, in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, when Jesus says something very similar to what we read in Matthew 10, he says it this way, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So sword is standing in the place of division. Well, what kind of division is Jesus talking about? 
Well, he explains in verse 35 of our text, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In Luke chapter 12, he says, For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus says the kind of division he's going to bring is relational division. More specifically, what Jesus says is going to bring relational division. Because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples as he prepares to send them out to proclaim this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, Jesus came to the world with a message, and that message is going to divide people. For some people will believe it, they will receive it, others will not believe, and they will reject it. So Jesus' sword is his word. It is his gospel. It is the news that he is the king of a new kingdom. It is the news that he is the one and only Savior of the world and that everyone must turn to him alone in obedient faith and repentance. So, many years later, when the Apostle John saw a vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he sees Jesus with a sharp, two-edged sword. But the sword is not in Jesus' hand. The sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And when the author of Hebrews describes God's word in Hebrews 4, he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Jesus came into the world to bring a sword because he came into the world to speak God's word. And so we read in Mark chapter 1, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So there you read Jesus coming into Galilee, wielding his sword, and he does so proclaiming the gospel. And this sharp, two-edged sword divides. That's what the sword does. It divides externally, and it also divides internally. So the first division we see is external division. Jesus says the sword is going to divide relationships, even the most fundamental, foundational human relationships, so that families are going to become enemies. 
And this was a warning for the disciples as they prepared to go out and preach the message Jesus gave them to preach. For even though he's sending them to people with a very good message, not everyone is going to love this good news. Some are going to hate the message, and they are absolutely going to blame the messengers. So Jesus tells them, some towns will receive them, others will reject them. But he says this rejection is not going to be a polite, no thank you. It's not going to be a, let, let's just agree to disagree. He says the rejection is going to be hostile. In verse 16 of Matthew 10, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. This Hostility is not just going to come from strangers that they'd never met before. It's not just going to come from government officials. Jesus says, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child. And children will arise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Fathers are going to give their little boys over to die. Daughters are going to hand over their mothers to be executed. And Jesus says, this isn't the exception. This is the expectation. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus says, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says this even stronger in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The word divides worldly relationships because the word divides the Christian from the world. When we become Christians, we are cut off from the world. We're still in the world. It doesn't mean we leave earth. World here stands for the, the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that is opposed to God and his ways. We're still on earth and we're still in that kingdom, but we're no longer of that world. This world is no longer our home. The people of the world are no longer our people. They are not our family. And we, we remember God is the true ruler of all creation. His kingdom is the true kingdom. But we learned last time that there is a rebel called the devil who is the God of this world. He is the prince of the spiritual kingdom of sin and darkness. And when we are still in our sin, we are citizens and subjects of his kingdom. 
a kingdom that despises the Lord. The gospel then is the proclamation of a different king, of the true king. It is the message that we can be severed from our sin. We can be removed out of the kingdom of darkness and enter into the kingdom of light. So the gospel is proclaiming peace, but it is proclaiming peace with God. It is proclaiming peace with the heavenly kingdom, which is necessarily war with the kingdom of this world. And so if you receive this gospel, you have become Satan's enemy. You are opposed to his kingdom. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, James says you cannot be God's friend and the world's friend at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive realities. Just like light and dark cannot occupy the same space, you cannot have friendship with both. Which means then it is equally true to say, do you not know that friendship with God is enmity with the world? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself an enemy of the world. Christianity is a shift in your allegiance and friendship. You have switched teams. You, you see the hostility that athletes face when they transfer schools or just sign with a, a different basketball team. And their fans go out and they burn their jerseys. They're so upset by these things. They call them all kinds of names on social media. And we're talking about a game. We've shifted families. We've shifted kingdoms. We have shifted our allegiance. Our family is now the family of God. For the blood of Christ binds us far more intimately than the blood that runs through our veins. So when Jesus' mother and brothers were seeking him, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. If you want to gain Christ, you must give up the world. To be in Christ's family, you must be ready to give up your own family. Because the gospel cuts, and the gospel is costly. I think sometimes we take our Christianity so casually because we don't recognize how costly it is. We're not giving up what we ought to give up. And so we think, yeah, I, I can do this Christian thing and still have everything else I want. Yet there are those in this world who have experienced exactly what Jesus has described. 
We're growing soft here in the United States. You go to other parts of the world and you will see fathers hand over their children to die because they became a Christian. And yet we just sit on our couches and we think, eh, no big deal. And yet there are those, even in our own nation, who see how much this costs. As Christian parents wrestle with how they respond to their children who are starting to embrace these ideologies and identities that are opposed to God's creation order. And they're realizing, I'm losing my child. And if I don't capitulate to what they want, they may never speak to me again. And they feel that tension because the agony of beloved family members rejecting the gospel is unspeakable. And we are tempted to do whatever we can to maintain our earthly relationships. But those relationships can't be the same if we remain committed to Christ. And if we are to compromise the gospel to maintain earthly relationships, then we will kill our soul. The gospel of Jesus inevitably causes division because light cannot dwell with darkness and the kingdom of the devil cannot coincide with the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is the good news of peace. But it is peace with God, which means war with the world. Separation to God is separation from the world. That is the external division that Jesus has brought. But there is secondly an internal division, which is actually the first division that takes place. Before the gospel divides our relationships with others, it divides our relationship with our very selves. In other words, the first division comes within, and it's this internal division that leads to the external division. Hebrews 4.12 again. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thoughts and intentions are internal realities. And when we come into this world, the thoughts and intentions of our heart are sin. They are opposed to God. In Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was very great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's our reality. The cancer of sin runs deep. It runs to the very center of our being. And so no man-made religion or philosophy can get to that center to cut it out. But the gospel can. Christ wields the sword first to cut away and separate us from our sin. 
He wields the sword to cut out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh to divide us from sin's affection and authority and give us a new affection and a new authority. That's what's happening inside the person when they receive the gospel. To receive Jesus is to receive him as your new supreme affection and authority. So verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is even more provocative in Luke 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think that seems a little extreme, Jesus. You want us to hate people? Well, he doesn't literally want us to hate people. He uses that language because Jesus knows how we naturally are. <laughs> he knows people start talking, we start drifting. Probably about how half of you are doing right now. Just what, what, what's happening later today. And so he wants to get our attention and he wakes us up and he says, you need to hate your wife, hate your son. Now we're listening. The point is not how little we are to love others. The point is how much more we are to love Christ. See, Jesus commands us to love others. What is the second great commandment? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. So he assumes we love ourselves and he commands us to love our neighbors. Jesus tells his disciples, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Paul commands husbands, love your wives as your own body. Parents and children are to love one another. Even brothers and sisters are supposed to love one another. Christians should love one another. Jesus even says we must love our enemies. So the point is not you hate everybody. You are to love, to love deeply, to love powerfully. But loving one another is only good when it is secondary. The first great command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And we have ceased to obey the second great commandment if we have made it the first. Jesus is saying he must be our supreme affection and it should not be close. Just parents, think about how much you love your children. Spouses, think how much you love your spouse, your husband, your wife. You're not to love them less. Just to think of how much you do love them and then realize how much greater ought my love of Christ 
to be. We are to love Christ so much that our great love for Christ makes all our other loves look like hate in compar comparison. See, I, I hope people would say that if they saw me interacting with women in my life, they'd say, oh, he, he shows great love, affection, and respect for those women. But then I hope that when they see me interact with my wife, they would see something so fundamentally different that they would say, it's like he doesn't even care about other women. That, that's what Jesus is saying. To be a Christian is to hold Christ in your heart as your supreme affection that dwarfs all other affections. And this is exactly why the world will hate us. This is why the devil hates us. It's because we now love most what he hates the most. And we hate the most, which is sin, what he loves the most. The internal division in our heart, when pierced by the gospel of Christ, produces the external division we suffer because our supreme affection has shifted. And so has our allegiance. Jesus is not only our supreme affection, he is now our supreme authority. Verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This means the Christian submits to Christ above all things, in all things. The Christian bears whatever crosses may line the path that Christ sets him upon. The Christian will bear whatever shame, whatever suffering may come upon him because he follows Christ. Because you only enter the kingdom of heaven when you submit to heaven's king. And this is why I say that the gospel divides our relationship with ourselves before it divides our relationship with others. Just as our relationships with others change when we receive Christ, our relationship with our very self changes when we receive Christ. We are no longer our first love. We are no longer our first authority. Instead, in conversion, by faith, we hand our heart and our soul to the true king and we submit to his will in all things. And our new prayer, above all other prayers, is your will be done. His word now directs us. His will drives us. His way delights us. We must let go of ourselves. But in this way, Jesus says, we actually find ourselves. Because sin has stolen our humanity. We, we talk about our sinful nature, but our nature was not originally sinful. Sin has dehumanized us. It has made us less than God made us. But grace restores that nature. And so Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That 
Greek word for life also means soul. So Jesus is not just saying, you, you only find eternal life if you are martyred for my sake. He's saying, you have to give up your soul if you're going to gain it. He's talking about dying to ourselves, which may include losing our, our literal life. But it's only as we die to ourselves that we find ourselves. And our culture is obsessed with finding the authentic you and being true to yourself. But the real you is not found in you. You can keep looking inside all you want. You're never going to find who you were supposed to be. You must only look to Christ and then you find you. Because his image is who you are supposed to be. His truth is your truth. Because it's the only truth. We must lay down our crown and bow before his. And this is the scary part about receiving the gospel. See, if someone were to come to you with a sword, you probably would not be inclined to let him run you through with it. Kids, if someone comes to you with a sword, don't play with it. Don't let them cut you. That's not smart. We naturally try to avoid being stabbed. But you must be run through with Christ's sword if you're going to live. You must let him pierce your soul. For if you would be spared, you will die. But if you will receive the blow, you will live. The grace of Jesus Christ does bring peace. But it only comes through a holy violence upon ourselves. Christ came to bring a sword. How then do we respond to this news? Well, first, of as I've already said, we must be cut by this sword. When Peter preached at Pentecost, Luke writes of the hearers, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's what the gospel does. And so I ask you this morning, have you been cut? If you have, rejoice and receive your king. Lay down your weapons. Open the gates of your heart and let the king come in. We sing with the psalmist, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So we must yield to the king and his sword. But then we are to take up that sword in the service of our king. For Christ commands us to take in hand the very sword that has pierced our heart. Paul says, 
in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we are all commanded. We take up this sword. But how do we wield this sword? Three brief ways. First, we continue every day to wield the sword against ourselves. We must daily take up the word and pierce our hearts to keep exposing our sin and keep us trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ. We must regularly preach the gospel to ourselves and sit under the preaching of the gospel. The sword is, is not just for others. It is first for us. Second, we wield the sword against the cosmic rulers of this world, against the devil and his spiritual forces of darkness. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we do have a war that we are waging, and it is against the spiritual forces of darkness. And so we proclaim God's word in the world to fight against sin, to fight against Satan, to defeat the lies, the temptations, the accusations, and the wickedness of this world. It is by the power of the word that we shine in the darkness, that we stand firmly upon the truth, and we fight for righteousness and justice in the world. But we do it through preaching. We do it through telling people about the true king. So yes, we fight. And third, we do wield the sword against those who are still subjects of this world. Jesus is clear. Those of the world, even in our own families, have become our enemies. But this is where we need to be very careful. Because there are those who hear this and they think, oh, I love a good fight. Let's go. I'll fight anyone. I know everyone's my enemy. But how are we supposed to treat our enemies? You have heard that it was said, Jesus taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Notice he doesn't say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you can just be soft and wishy-washy. He says, no, you do that so that you can actually live like your Father in heaven lives. The world hates God. And how has God responded to that hate? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world likewise hates us, Jesus says. But we're to respond like our Father responded. 
For as the Father sent the Son into the world to save the world, so the Son has sent us into the world to speak the good news of that salvation. Will there come judgment and condemnation for those who reject the gospel? You better believe it. But we are to wield the sword now by preaching the hope of the gospel to those who are still lost and enemies of God. We are not of the world, but we are to go in the world to win people out of the world to Christ with the word of Christ in the spirit of Christ, reflecting the very heart of Christ. And this is where I think we go wrong sometimes. We speak the word of Christ, but not with the heart of Christ. Christian preaching not only preaches the word of Christ, but it preaches with the heart of Christ. And this means we never, we never compromise the truth of the gospel. We will never give an inch to the lies that are out there in this world. No matter how heartbreaking it may be, no matter what relationships we may lose, when someone comes to us and says, you have to affirm me in my sin, we with tears say, I can't do it. That would not love you. And my love for Christ supersedes all other loves. We speak clearly, boldly, and lovingly. And sometimes this means we're going to speak words nobody wants to hear. But we are not Jonah's who preach the, gover- the, the judgment of God with glee and are angered when God shows mercy. Because God himself says he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Neither do we. That's not the heart of Christ. Did Jesus speak hard words? You better believe it. Did he flip over tables in anger? You better believe it. Did he call out corruption, complacency, and hypocrisy? Absolutely. But I also want you to hear Jesus wield the sword in this way. Here's Jesus drawing his sword against his enemies. He draws his sword and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want you to see the posture of Christ toward his enemies, toward those who hated him, towards those who mocked him, towards those who conspired to kill him. As he looked upon his enemies, he wept and he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? 
And I want you to hear how Jesus prays for his enemies as they nail him to a cross and they yell at him in mockery and they cast lots for his clothes. He looks upon those enemies and he prays to his father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's Jesus wielding his sword against his enemies. Does our heart weep for our enemies like Christ's heart weeps? Do we pray for our enemies like Christ prays? Do we love our enemies like Christ by telling them about Christ? About the Savior and the King who came to bring the sword of their salvation. If we do, many will mock us, many will hate us, many re will reject us. But some will listen to us, some will believe, and our greatest enemies will become our dearest family. Just look around this room. This is a room filled with God's enemies, who while they were still his enemies, he reconciled himself to himself through the violent death of his son. You look around the room and you see the power of this gospel. You see the power of this sword. The sword that kills and brings life. This is the power of the gospel. The sword that divides us is the sword that saves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I do pray that even now you would pierce and divide the intentions and thoughts of our hearts, that you would again expose our sin and show us where we have not stood upon the truth like Christ or where we have not loved with the heart of Christ. Show us where we have compromised and shrunk back out of fear. Show, about, show us where we have gone in guns blazing without a care for the salvation of those we preach against. Lord, make us more like your son. Make us more like you. Save us and send us into this world to preach that salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.